Welcome to Red Leg Nation Radio, your home for discussion and analysis of Cincinnati Reds baseball all year long. Now here's your host, Chad Dotson. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Thanks for listening once again this week. I'm Chad Dotson. Really interesting episode this week, uh, for me at least, and for Reds fans of a certain generation, I think that you're going to probably agree with me on this. I was lucky to have uh, Joe Oliver join us this week. And you know, you know, Joe Oliver, catcher for the Reds, played in the the major leagues for parts of 13 seasons, played with the Reds for um, parts of eight seasons. And, and Oliver really sort of in some ways has a little bit of a, an underrated Reds career. Did you know there's only four catchers in the history of the Reds that uh, caught more games in a Reds uniform than, than Joe Oliver? It's sort of hard to believe. Uh, of course, uh, two of those guys are Hall of Famers, Johnny Bench and Ernie Lombardi. But, uh, but Joe Oliver, really, really good Reds career. Played, uh, came up in 1989 as a 23-year-old uh, in July. And one month later, uh, well, that was just a circus as I got into a little bit with, with Joe in this conversation. But his career is, is, is kind of defined by Game 2 of the 1990 World Series and that 1990 championship team. But uh, but as you'll hear from from Joe sort of a fulfilling career beginning to end and uh he's he's fighting now to get back to the big leagues uh really having a pretty good run over the last uh, 3 or 4 years as a manager in the Red Sox system. So I was really uh fortunate to get a chance to talk to him. He he turned out he was just an extremely gracious guy, uh gracious with his time for me and uh and had some interesting things to say about some of these things that we feel like we know about the 1990 team specifically, and had some things to say that were interesting that, uh, you know, maybe put in a different way than we'd heard them before. And uh, it's interesting to have a, you know, a view of uh, the boots on the ground view, I guess, from someone who was in that clubhouse on the field and uh, a young guy really learning what it was to be a professional around this, uh, this fantastic 1990 wire to wire Reds team. So I, I think you're gonna I think you're gonna enjoy it. I think you'll uh, sort of realize uh, after listening to this, uh, hey, this Joe Oliver's not not a bad guy, and uh, there's a reason why he's remembered fondly in uh, in Cincinnati. And uh, will be as we, as we talked about, he will be forever probably he's gonna be invited back occasionally because he was a member of that uh, fantastic 1990 championship team. So you know you don't want to hear me talk anymore. I don't think probably not maybe. If you do, there's something wrong with you, probably. So let's get uh, go ahead and uh, and jump into this uh, interview. My discussion with former Reds catcher Joe Oliver. One, one thing I wanted to ask you before we get into, obviously, I'm sure you've answered plenty of questions about the game two, 1990, but uh, and that whole team. But you debuted in '89, July of '89, with the Reds. And uh, I guess Pete was the manager. Pete Rose was the manager at that time. And what was it like as a 23-year-old coming into that environment? Because it was sort of a circus then, I believe. Yeah, it was uh, definitely something that I had no idea about. I mean, I guess I was really the the young buck coming in with the blinders on, and and uh, so excited about getting my chance to come up. You know, I was told uh, it was going to be just for a few days. Because uh, Bo Diaz had uh, knee surgery, and you know, all anybody wants as a young player in AAA is to get a get their foot in the door, and 
and uh, you know you you get the chance to go up and play, and your first manager is Pete Rose, and and uh, you know you, you're kind of just putting your head down and, and going about your business and playing the game, and not really paying attention to what's going on, but but just trying to enjoy and, and take in the moment. After the after that season and, and everything with Pete, and then you're coming into the following season, you end up being uh, uh, the primary catcher in 1990. What was the feeling in the clubhouse before the season? Was it a, was it a situation where the, t- the team uh, was pretty confident coming in, or still sort of a circus atmosphere? Well, you know, when, when you uh, have a team like we did in '89, we we had a lot of guys that had played together, or had gone to instructional league together, or, or had some type of relationship coming up through the minor leagues, and we knew that we had a really good, solid core of young talent. And it complemented the experience that we had from the guys that were there brought in from the years before. Uh, but, you know, coming in uh, to the 90 spring, you know, bringing in uh, uh, Lou, um, it added a whole new breath of fresh air. And and uh, Lou was basically came in and said that uh, we were underachieving and we we're a much better group of, of players than uh, what we had showed, um, you know, in the, in the short period of time that I was there. Um, you know, and we started to buy into it in spring training and, and uh, you know, not taking anything away from Pete because Pete really put all these guys together. But, you know, of course, with his suspension, uh, he wasn't able to be there. But Lou came in and, and gave us the no-nonsense that I think that uh, uh, really brought us together as a group. And uh, I think the guys started believing in the process that he was instilling with himself and the coaching staff. And, and you know, the story – kind of dictated itself after that i mean we had a great season that year and and uh you know the the, that whole group is still a real tight click uh, of family you played for you drafted i guess in 1983 and played for the better part of uh, a couple of decades and lou Pinella is professional baseball till 2001 i guess uh how how does lou rank among all the managers you played for because you played for a bunch of different managers in that career well, you know, Lou, um, I have to give Lou a lot of credit for uh, um, making me the type of player that I became when I was uh, up in the big leagues. I mean, the, the whole minor league organization, uh, the Jim Hoffs, the Mark Bombards, the Jimmy Letts, you know, I have to give those guys credit for making me a major league ball player and preparing me for more of my opportunity arose. But then I think Lou, Lou – helped me reach down deep inside of myself and, and kind of uh, pull something out that I didn't know that I had. Um, you know, he, he's a, a tough guy to play for and, and a tough, tough uh, man on pitchers and catchers. And uh, me being a young, young catcher coming up, he had high expectations, you know, for me. And, and fortunately, I had the pitching staff, a veteran pitching staff that took a lot of the pressure off a young catcher stepping into that situation. But Lou, you know, he went and got me twice uh, with Seattle when I was towards the end of my career, and and that's uh, something that I feel like I really cherish because, you know, I had the opportunity to play for him in Cincinnati and win a World Series, and then later in my very end of my career, I got to play for him in Seattle and play in the postseason in the American League uh, uh, um, uh, postseason and, and put together a pretty good postseason as well, but uh, fell short of getting back to the World Series, but He's definitely my all-time favorite to play for. Um, I, I can't say anything bad that would be negative about him because he was so good to me throughout my career. 
um, you know, and he's definitely my favorite. You know, and again, I want to get to, to your, your chapter in the book sort of uh, in a moment, but uh, we talk about Jose Rijo a lot in the book uh, with respect to that 1990 season. What was it like catching catching Rijo? I've always told people that uh, Jose, you know, I've caught a lot of, playing for other organizations, i caught a lot of other pitchers, you know, a brief stint with, uh, with the Yankees and and a brief stint with uh, the Red Sox, and I, and I caught a lot of quality, big-name pitchers. But over the long haul, Jose was the best big-game money pitcher I ever caught. And it just seemed like he was able to elevate his, uh, his focus in, in his game to another level when the lights were brighter and the pressure was stronger. And, and he showed that uh, during the postseason in the World Series, what he was capable of doing, just dominating um, a lineup that was just geared for offense. And, you know, he, he just wanted the ball. And you, you, those guys that are able to get to, uh, uh, to September, and it, it, it's just something that seems like it's in those guys' DNA, and he was one of them that the, the situation and, and who he was facing, it didn't matter. I mean, he knew his stuff was better than what they were going to uh, be able to hit. And the confidence just exuded. And, you know, it, it, the, the team fed off of that. When he was on the mound, it seemed like we played harder. Uh, we had a lot of confidence that he was going to go deep into ball games and give us the best opportunity to win. And, you know, he, he was a winner, you know. And, and uh, for a guy that uh, – um, had such um, elbow issues. It was amazing of what he was able to do um, and get that uh, unbelievable slider. And I mean, he still had 96 to 98 on the fastball and be able to suck that up and, and pitch through discomfort and pain for as long as he did was pretty amazing. Uh, no doubt. You, you talk about how the team sort of felt uh, behind playing behind Jose Rio, and that's sort of the conventional wisdom as well with that team. And you can d- dispel this or uh, or agree with it, but the conventional wisdom seems to be that with that team and the Nasty Boys, once you got past the sixth inning, you guys just felt like this game's over. Is, is that sort of is that is that true? I guess. Well, you know, you you go through and you look back at uh, the successes of that team, and you know, we we excelled at doing the little things really well, and uh, I think we were able to get out in front of ball clubs by doing the little things, taking the extra bases by hitting behind the runner, moving guys over, getting the opportunity to drive in runs with the runner at third base in less than two outs, and knowing that that was our game plan to be able to go to the bullpen and shut the teams down. If we could get three or four runs, ball game was typically over with the bullpen that we had. And you started seeing managers change the way that they approached us um, mid to late season. They, they decided to start bunting in the first inning and second inning and third inning, trying to get any type of run they could scratch across to try to keep the bullpen uh, from coming in and shutting the door. And it was, it was pretty impressive to just see how consistent they were over the whole length of the season. You know, and then losing Norm Charlton to the starting rotation, it was like we didn't miss a beat. You know, now all of a sudden the, the, the rest of the bullpen stepped up and you know, Charlton was a big part of our success when we had uh, Danny Jackson to go down, and uh, Jack Armstrong presented some struggles in the second half. So, I mean, it was the Nasty Boys definitely were the difference maker for us throughout the course of the season, just by changing the way that the game was played against us. You guys got out to a really hot start that year. Won I think the first nine games, and uh, 
obviously wire to wire Reds is the uh, the nickname for that team. But as you as you entered the postseason that year, you guys weren't getting a whole lot of respect necessarily. But how was the confidence in the clubhouse? Did you did you guys? I know you probably didn't expect what happened, but what uh, what was the feeling as you as you went to play Pittsburgh in the NLCS? Well, we honestly knew that Pittsburgh was was probably the team that was going to give us the most trouble because we played each other so much. Both clubs knew each other extremely well. You know, we didn't have interleague play right then, so you know there was a big mystery of what Oakland was going to be or or anybody who came out of uh, the American League. But knowing that Oakland and, and and us matched up extremely well against each other, that was a uh, you know a Glenn Bragg's. Uh, catch over the fence away from changing the whole series. Who knows what happens after that going to game seven. But um, once we won the National League, we felt very confident in our ability. Um, and we liked and embraced the uh, the underdog, uh, underdog role uh, just because, you know, Oakland at that point in time was built for the postseason. They showed the postseason success. They were that team that could be that dynasty uh going into the 80s and 90s and just dominating uh uh, baseball for for quite some time and we got overlooked you know and and you you have to embrace that and just you know i think we we knew going in that we were going to play well and that gave us the edge i think if it would have been the other way around we we might not have had the success that we had you know if we were the favorite it might have been a little more daunting task to hang on to it, but nobody knew who we were coming out of spring training. Nobody expected us uh, to win the, uh, the the National League, and you know we came together as a unit at the right time. And uh, it just shows you when you get the momentum going and the confidence going that 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 momentum is hard to stop. Uh, talking about conventional wisdom again, as you started uh, into that, it sounds like you guys were confident already, but. To the fans, that home run by by Davis in, in Game One off Dave Stewart was, a, was sort of a sign like this is a real team. D- did that have the impact on you guys that it did on everyone else? I think it kind of immediately showed us there's a chink in the armor. You know, they can be beaten. You know, uh, David and Goliath, and, and uh, you know, when Eric hit that ball to dead center field, and it was a, a mighty blast. I mean, it it, it was a shot. It, it kind of punched them right in the right in the gut, you know, and, and uh, it kind of uh, shocked them. I don't really think that they expected us to come and beat them at their game and, and really just come up and just punch them right in the chin. And and uh, it showed to everybody else on the team, you know what, we can do this. You know, we really can. We know it's a it's a you know a long series, but um, we've got somebody who stepped up to the plate and had a big hit, and it and it. It, it landed a big blow, and uh, I think it shook their confidence as well. They didn't expect to come in and, and be uh, uh, be behind after the first inning, and, and it seems like we just never really turned back after that moment. Just aside from that particular home run, how important was Eric Davis to to that team? Because, you know, one of the most talented guys ever to play baseball. You know, you have a guy that's uh, a 30-30 guy, and, and uh, um, he just – was was a guy that could take over the club or take over the game, excuse me, um, 
whether it was offense or defense. He could go, you know, make a great catch, robbing a home run. He could throw a guy out trying to take the extra base. He could steal the base. He could go first to third. He could score from, you know, from first on a, a ball in a gap. And then he could just uh, hit you the big home runs that you needed. And, and his presence in the clubhouse and presence on the field, it was just somebody that was that, that exuded the confidence that uh, rubbed off uh, rubbed off on a lot of people. You know, I was very fortunate when I was with Cincy that my locker was between Eric Davis and Barry Larkin, and you know, I got that opportunity to see the confidence that both of those guys exuded every day they put on the uniform, and and it started to rub off on me as a young player and giving me that that uh, breath of fresh air that I needed to compete. And, you know, Eric was, was a leader and uh, he, he really took over the game and the series. And I think if, if we would have uh, had to go um, to any more games than what we did, we'd have been in trouble, trouble losing uh, Davis and Hatcher. No doubt. No doubt. Let, let's game one, you win going away, uh, sort of shocked the baseball world in some ways Come into game two and it's tight back and forth, uh, basically all, all the way, we get to extra innings. Um, first of all, were you aware at the time, was anyone aware about uh, the fact that Tom Browning was uh, not present and they were trying to get him back to the uh, to the stadium? Well, there were some guys that knew on the bench, but at that point in time, I, I had no idea. I was so uh, locked into what was going on and, and not trying to be distracted by what you know the coaching staff was huddled up doing around the lineup card and trying to figure things out. I mean, you you kind of get into that zone and you kind of just check yourself out of what they're doing, let them do their job. And, and, you know, they, they tell you to keep playing or they're going to pinch it for you or make a change. And you just, you're just taking that uh, opportunity to, to stay focused in the game. I mean, that's, that's what you work for your whole career is to get that opportunity. And I had no idea what was going on at that moment in time. So let's fast forward to the bottom of the 10th. Um, I'm sure you remember uh, these events fairly well. <laughs> um, so Dennis Eckersley comes in. And, of course, Eckersley, the uh, most fearsome guy in baseball uh, at that time in terms of relief pitchers uh, outside of the Nasty Boys. Billy Bates pinch hits with, for Rob Dibble with one out. Uh, what do you remember about uh, Billy Bates? Uh, did you guys even know much about Billy Bates at that time? He hadn't been with the team very long. Uh, he'd come up in September and didn't get a whole lot of playing time. And, and uh, you know, he he was fortunate enough to be on the roster for various other injuries. And, and uh, um, you know, his speed uh, basically was added because of his speed that he had that he could probably pinch run and score. And I remember Lou talking about it. He didn't want to use Quinones in that situation just because he looked at Louie more of as, a, as a potential RBI guy. Uh, than looking at Bates and Bates, you know, was more of a get on base type of guy. And, uh, sure enough, I mean, he, it, it's not how you exactly draw it up, but chopping a ball off the plate and using his legs to beat out an infield single, uh, off of that turf, you know, that you couldn't have drawn it up any better. And, uh, you know, we, we didn't know what to expect from Billy coming in. I mean, it was a young guy that was coming up and, and, uh, you know, you don't really have a clue about what certain guys are doing, you know, for the full length of the season, and they make an appearance late in September. Well, he gets a hit, Sabo singles to left, and then uh, then you come to the plate. What's and and this may be a question that's difficult to answer at this time, but what were you thinking walking up to the plate to face Dennis Eckersley in a situation like that? Well, I had an opportunity in the eighth um, with Rick Honeycutt coming in, and. 
um, I grounded out the shortstop and, and, uh, I'm just walking up to, to the plate thinking, come on, Lou, give me one more chance here. I want this chance. You know, I didn't want to be pinch hit for, um, and, and, uh, as I took a few steps, I kept kind of listening over my shoulder, trying to hear my name called and I didn't hear it. So I'm like, all right, focus. We haven't faced this guy before, but you've seen him a thousand times on TV, you know, just try to take the first pitch uh, kind of get some timing off of him because you don't know what his breaking ball looks like. You don't know anything what it's looking like. So he threw me a first pitch, uh, uh, first pitch slider that was pretty tough. And I was like, boy, that was, you know, good decision on taking that. Now let's sit on it. And, uh, the second pitch, um, he threw me a, a backup slider that I know that to this day he would like to have back and, uh, you know, stayed on the inside part of the plate. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I can't say that I'm up there trying to hit a ball down the line or anything like that, but it just worked out that uh, I got a good enough part of the bat on it and chopped it down the third base line. And, you know, fortunately, Lansford was off. Uh, they played me to pull, um, but fortunately for that time, they weren't exactly playing uh, an extreme pull in the situation that they played me the rest of the series. So, you know, uh, I got a good pitch to hit, and I didn't miss it. At what point did it occur to you that, you know, sort of the image of you rounding first and that hit and, and the drama surrounding that game was going to be one of the kind of indelible images in the history uh, of the Reds, certainly for a certain generation of fans. And I'm sure you hear a lot of it when you come back to Cincinnati these days. At, at what point did you realize how big that was? Well, when I hit the ball, I mean, it was a high chopper, and, and I'm just screaming in my mind, stay fair, stay fair, stay fair. And to see it, it just seemed like everything was in a very surreal moment and going so slow and just, it, it was almost like I was taking everything in as it was happening and and just seeing the ball heading down the uh, third baseline and, and seeing Randy Marsh signaling, signaling fair uh, as the ball hits half on and half off of the line and, and just saying, oh my God. You know, you just won a World Series game. You got to walk off hitting the World Series, and and it just rounding first. All I could think about was my 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 wife and my newborn son being up there, and my parents and my wife's parents and uh, grandparents, just everybody there to be able to take in probably the biggest moment of my sports career um, and being a part of it, and, and just taking that all in. You know, was just unbelievable and. And, you know, I always, every time I go to Cincinnati or, or run into Cincinnati fans throughout, now that I'm in the minor leagues managing, somebody will tell me where they were uh, in game two of the World Series and what they were doing, whether they were at the ballpark in the, in the upper deck or, you know, or whether they were watching on TV with their family and they were in school or, you know, it, it never fails that I run across somebody who gives me that, uh, that little input of where they were. Well, certainly one of the great moments uh, for you personally had to have been, and for a, for a lot of us as well. A few nights later, out in Oakland, you had another pretty good moment. Uh, how was it when that ball settled into Benzinger's glove behind first base, and uh, and you guys had swept the the mighty A's? How, how was that feeling? You know, going out there for the ninth inning, and you have a a, a lead, and knowing what they have coming up um, to face Rio for one hitter, and then Randy Myers. Uh, still what they have with Conseco coming up and uh, you're never comfortable you know you're anxious you're 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 the butterflies are going uh 
you're wanting to enjoy everything, but you're wanting to stay focused in the moment. And, and then when Kearney Lansford popped that ball up and knowing that Oakland has a tremendous amount of foul territory um, and seeing Ben Zanger calling for it and then catching it, it's just the elation that comes over you. You're now World Series champions. You've, you've slayed the, the giant um, and – You've done it in convincing fashion of four games and just the culmination of the season, the everything coming together, it's worthwhile. And, and just the elation that you're going through and celebrating with your, your family, your friends, your teammates, you know, going through that and then lifting that world series trophy up. I mean, you, you just, you know, other than getting married and having my children, that's my single greatest moment that I've, I've ever had. Well, there you are at age 25. I think you turned 25 that season, and uh, you're a World Series hero and a World Series champion, uh, top of the world, I guess, huh? Yeah, I mean, at least on top of the sports world. Right. You know, I mean, you, you're enjoying the moment in and, and the Fountain Square, having the celebration and seeing all the people there and, you know, bringing a World Series title back to Cincinnati where, you know, baseball all started, and it was a special moment that day, and and uh, even though it was a little drizzly and, and, and cool, I mean, it felt like the sun was out and there wasn't a cloud in the sky in my mind. No doubt. He hit 333, three doubles uh, in that series. But, you know, you played parts of eight seasons, I think, with uh, with the Reds, uh, the bulk of your, your playing career. What are your what – your, what memories do you take away from your time uh, in Cincinnati? Because I know you're remembered fondly, but how, how do you – what do you take away? Um, I feel fortunate that I was I was drafted and came up through the Reds organization. I mean, they instilled in me what it is to be a professional and the the quality people, the scouts, the coaches, the managers, the whole organization. You know, it, it just they treated me extremely well, and I really didn't realize that going through the process until I got out of baseball. What that they what they actually taught me and uh, uh, how they made me a young man and and made me the person that I am today and the manager that I am today with the Red Sox organization and and just the whole experience you know it's hard to sit there and, and talk about one thing I mean obviously it's going to be my game two um, game winning hit but you know walking out the first time for my uh, major league debut you know that stands out. Uh, um, I, my daughter, um, oldest daughter was born and I delivered her, helped deliver her in the morning and then went and played in a game and hit a three run homer and won three to nothing. Um, you know, those are, those are things that stand out. Um, just the camaraderie in the clubhouse, being able to play with, with the guys that I played with and coming up through the minor leagues with, with Chris Sabo and Barry Lark and Eric Davis. You know, Billy Hatcher, uh, just Hal Morris, Norm Charlton, Rob Dibble, uh, Randy Myers. I mean, you just sit there and, and having Jeff Reed, you know, mentoring me throughout my career. And now uh, just you cherish those moments. You know, Paul O'Neill, uh, Glenn Braggs. I mean, you just sit here and you go on and on and on about everybody. And um, it's a special part of my DNA, you know, and. I, deep down inside, I always feel like I'm I'm a red, um, but you know what? It just 
it, it makes me a, a better baseball man, uh, knowing what I came from and what I went through and where I'm at right now. I, I just I enjoy being able to ex- uh, share my experiences with these young guys trying to get to Boston. Well, and you know, every few years you're going to be uh, asked and uh, invited back, I think, probably to Cincinnati because that is a, a special team and uh, you're an important member of that. Last Since 2014, I guess you've been managing in the Red Sox system um, and having quite a bit of success. Uh, how, how have you enjoyed that, and is that uh, something you look forward to continuing to do in the coming years? Well, once I retired, I uh, promised my wife that I would be there and help raise the family. We got four kids, and now we're we're empty nesters. Now our two youngest ones are in college, so uh, the Red Sox came calling, and and I couldn't turn down the offer to go manage in Lowell, uh, which is in the New York Penn League at their uh, short season uh, level, and spent two years there, and now this is my second year up here in Salem, Virginia, in the Carolina League, and I I got back into baseball couple of years after I got out of uh, pro ball and, and coached at the high school level and uh, coached my kids and was involved heavily with uh, my, my sons and daughters' uh, athletic careers and everything that they did. And, and then it just um, was the right opportunity to get back into pro ball, and I absolutely love it. And uh, it's my, my goal and desire to be – uh, at the major leagues as a manager or coach is not any different than it was when I was a player. You know, I enjoy the competition and I enjoy the instruction and the, and the, uh, the clubhouse that, uh, that you're able to be around every day uh, doing this. And it's something I, I envision doing at the highest level. Um, whether it's, you know, I, I can't tell you where it's going to be or whatever, but, uh, um, I just love the opportunity that I've been given by the Boston Red Sox, and, and they've been really good to me, and I have nothing but great things to say about this organization. They're a first-class organization and treated me extremely well. Well, I wish you the best of luck uh, on that journey and, and uh, look forward to seeing you back in the, in the big leagues someday. Uh, and, and I really appreciate you taking some time out uh, to talk to me here today. Um, My pleasure. And I'll get you a book All as right. soon as it's published, okay? Thanks, thanks, Joe. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, how about that Joe Oliver? That was fun, huh? Yeah, I really appreciate uh, Joe for taking some time out of his day to talk to us uh, at Red Leg Nation Radio and to uh, answer some dumb questions from a guy who has that 1990 team sort of imprinted on his brain. And I think a lot of you are like that. That was, you know, as a teenager, and it was just a big team, and a special team in the, in the lives of anyone who was a big Reds fan at that time and uh and still looms large in Reds history now because it's not like the last uh two or three decades have been very kind to the Reds uh, overall anyway so really good to reminisce with him a little bit uh, to talk to him a little uh, as you could tell I was uh, trolling for quotes uh for me for insights for our upcoming book on the Reds uh, the big 50 we'll give you more information about that as it's released uh, in the spring but you know, it, it it was good to sort of catch up with Joe, see how he's doing, and and he's it's interesting. You probably heard he's really excited about fighting to get back to the big leagues, and, and he kind of likened it to when he tried before when he was a minor league uh, player, and uh, and he's had a lot of success. If you check it out, he's with the Class A Advanced Salem Red Sox now, and uh, and I, I wish him the best, and would love to see him back in the uh, in the big leagues at some point and uh and don't count him out don't count him out so 
that's uh that's Joe Oliver. We're not going to talk a whole lot about this year's uh, Reds team. It's the All-Star break, and the Reds are getting ready to start again for the second half. And, uh, you know, I am I know I get accused of being uh, too optimistic sometimes. I get accused of sugarcoating things, maybe. I don't think I do. I think I, think I am optimistic, and I think there's reasons to be optimistic right now. now. The Reds had a rough first half, I guess, but, you know, not really that rough. It was just the pitching, and it was just the starting pitching. The bullpen's been relatively good with some great performances. The offense has been really good. Uh, something I didn't realize until the last week, really, the defense, I mean, we kind of knew it had been good. But if you look at uh, defensive runs saved, for example, the Reds have the second-best defensive lineup uh, in baseball. So, you know, defense good, offense good, bullpen mostly good. It's this starting pitching. And so that's where I, where I get a little optimistic, and I keep saying the Reds have probably hit the <laughs> they hit the uh, bottom, haven't they? They can't get any worse with the starting pitching, but man, all of a sudden, it's starting to look like maybe the pitching's coming around. Luis Castillo's had a couple of good starts uh, to begin his major league career. I know Amir Garrett had a couple of good starts to begin his major league career as well, and before he flamed out temporarily, because Amir Garrett's going to be back and better than ever before long. He's too young uh, not to be back here and uh, and pitching well. He's shown that ability. But Luis Castillo, you know, Homer Bailey's back, and his Homer Bailey's last two starts have been good after an extremely rough first couple of outings back from injury. So now all of a sudden, this rotation starts to look somewhere closer to average. And with an average rotation, given the, the other things that uh, are, are going well for this team, hey, all of a sudden looks like a team that could certainly have a winning record in the second half and talk about uh, raising expectations going into the second half of the season uh, or going into the 2018 season, I guess, if they have a good second half to this season. Very exciting. And I hope there's all kinds of expectations for the 2018 season so that people will be very excited and want to buy a brand new book about the Cincinnati Reds. Is that selfish that I, that I want them to be uh, an exciting team uh, full of uh, promise and optimism as we go into 2018 so that might help book sales, eh, whatever. I, I do think that the Reds can be pretty good uh, in the second half. Uh, you know, I don't see why the offense would take any kind of a huge step backwards. You know, who's playing way over their head? Maybe Cozart. You know, congratulations to Zach Cozart on starting the All Star game. The rest of these guys, I don't know. You can sort of squint and think, look, they can keep this up. Votto is the only one that uh, maybe you think is going to get better. Uh, because you always think Votto can get better. You just don't count him out with anything. Peraza's going to get better, I would think. It'd be interesting to see what happens with Cozart the next few weeks, whether the Reds trade him. I think they probably have to. It'll be a sad day in Red Leg Nation when they do, because he's had such a good uh, Reds career. But, you know, the offense should be good. The defense is good. And uh, and the bullpen continues to uh, perform. So, you know, Feldman and Scott Feldman and Tim Adelman have been adequate. Homer Bailey looking pretty good now. Luis Castillo, I really think, might stick. I think just given the circumstances with people injured and the poor performances from some of the other young guys, I think he's got a chance to stick here for the rest of the season. Uh, and, you know, at some point, Cody Reed and Robert Stevenson are showing some flashes. Robert Stevenson and Triple A's are showing some flashes of throwing strikes. Did you know Robert Stevenson, Stevenson, easy for me to say, can throw a strike? I didn't know that. Throwing some in the Triple A, and, and Cody Reed's had some good... Outings down there, and Ricky Davis coming back uh, as well. Uh, you know, there's there are there's some hope. There's some hope here, and so I'm looking forward to the second half of the season getting started, and I'm looking forward to seeing how the Reds progress and 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 we're, what we learn about some of these young guys, the young pitchers we talked about, what we learn about 
Jose Peraza, you know, Cozart's traded. Peraza moves over to shortstop. Uh, does his bat play a little better? Maybe. Still, guy still doesn't take a walk. Is Hamilton going to? Billy Hamilton going to improve? And he's showing some signs, and then he shows the signs of taking two steps back. Who knows? You know, lots still to learn, lots still to watch, lots still to be interested in for the rest of the season. So, I mean, I'm always interested in the Reds. That's why I waste my time doing a podcast for you guys uh, every week. But I think there is uh, some fun stuff ahead for this team in the rest of 2017 and beyond. As always, appreciate you listening to the podcast. Please uh, subscribe, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you find your podcast. We're out there. Find us. Uh, give us a rating and a review, if you could. I say this every week, but it really does. I, I should probably say it at the beginning of the podcast rather than the end, because who's listening to the end of these uh, podcasts? No one. Not even my mother. Uh, but subscribe and uh, give us a rating or review to help people find us. Also, you know, tell your friends. Tell your friends about us. Uh, spread the word. Having a good time here. You can email me at chaddotson at redlegnation.com. If you have questions you want to uh, have answered on the podcast or just comments about what we're doing, uh, requests, anything, feel free to email or give any kind of feedback. And uh, love to hear from, from each and every one of you every single week. You can find us at redlegnation.com every day where we have been writing about the Reds for since 2005 and uh, at redlegnation on Twitter where we are probably too snarky when we talk about the Reds. But we have a good time. So thanks for listening. The, once again, this is Chad Dotson saying so long, everyone. Thanks for listening to Red Leg Nation Radio from redlegnation.com. Subscribe to Red Leg Nation Radio on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. And join us for discussion of all things Reds at redlegnation.com. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week.